Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we sit down with Australian food icon Donna Hay to discuss her latest book, Even More Basics to Brilliance, and get a taste for her practical and generous approach to cooking. Because if you're going to cook one of my recipes, it's going to work. It's going to work and it's going to make you look good in front of your friends. It's going to taste delicious. It's going to tick all those boxes that it should. Also on the programme, we head to the wine-growing region of Vidigueira, one of Portugal's lesser-known but most fascinating appellations. With its lemon-yellow colour and earthy notes on the nose, linked to fermentation in the Thai clay vessels, the Arinto from Ermo surprises in the mouth with refreshing notes to reveal a very gastronomic wine. Plus, we celebrate the world's 50 Best Bar Awards in Singapore. All that here on the menu on Monocle Radio. Australian food stylist, author and all-round broadcasting superstar Donna Hay has over 20 cookbooks under her belt, but she's got plenty more recipes ready to share. Her latest title, Even More Basics to Brilliance, expands on her bestseller Basics to Brilliance with a plethora of beautiful dishes, tips and practical solutions for cooking. From falafel to ramen stock, barbecue pork to Basque burnt cheesecake, inspiration comes from far and wide, but all recipes are joined by an unfussy approach to cooking in the most foolproof way for impressive results. On a visit from Australia, she joined me in the studio to explain more. Well, for me, uh, abundance means a lot of things when cooking, not just abundance of fresh ingredients and abundance of joy because, you know, whenever you're cooking, usually you're cooking for your family or even just the abundance of looking after yourself. So that word means so many things when you put it into the cooking genre. But I guess abundance of fresh ingredients probably is where I'll strike on that one, which is super important to me. I love this book because it operates exactly how I think. Oh, good. good. (laughs) I think it's excellent. And for our listeners, it basically takes the process for one basic and then presents you with three options of recipes that you can apply that basic to. I think it's genius. Um, What? Let's go back one step, because in your introduction to the book, you say that the way that we eat has changed or that the, the way that, the, um, that today's chef operates has changed a bit. What do you mean by that? Because this is the second volume to a book that I produced seven years ago, which is exactly how I like to teach people to cook. Um, here's a basic. It might be as simple as roasted garlic, a simple rough chopped salsa verde. But here's what you can do with it. So that book And it was astounding how many new things there were to add in seven years. Like just a simple ramen stock. And seven years ago, probably wouldn't have heard of that in Sydney. Um, Yet it's on every second street corner, a bowl of really lovely ramen soup. So um, it is my preferred way to teach you how to cook. So seven years on... I convinced my publishers that we definitely needed a new volume because there was just so much more that I wanted to explore as a basic Um, and things that I just couldn't fit in the first book either. Um, So, you know, I think it appeals to a lot of people to master a basic, but then they don't want to keep repeating 
the same thing again and again. There's some really beautiful Asian spiced beef short ribs. But, you, you know, it's nice to cook that a couple of times. But then what am I going to do with it after that? I still love that recipe. But I think that's the genius is that I'm going to write your recipe, but it's just like me choosing your clothes. Um, you might not like that style of pasta or that coriander or whatever else that you, you know, that you that you really don't love in your own food. So it's really to tailor make it, to, to make it your own. And I think that's the the kind of the beauty or the joy of mastering a basic is then you get confident and then you can really twist it into something that, you know, you can call your own or that you just are really falling in love with. How do you find that your cooking has changed in the last seven years? Has it? Obviously, you've been doing this for a long time. So do you find evolution in yourself as well? Yeah, I mean... I'm always trying to add a little bit of health in there as well. So I'm happy to add extra greens and and make my baking even a little bit healthier. But it's not as easy as just, oh, well, I'm just going to swap in a little bit of coconut sugar and everything's going to be fine and dandy because it's not. Food science will tell you that you have to work a little bit harder to make that happen. So for me, I guess I'm always exploring the better for you options. But then I still feel like I have a role to play in getting people to still cook at home and commit to not just dialing in for delivery. So I kind of, I've got a couple of different approaches to how I'm, I've been cooking, um, but still just trying to encourage people and, and to teach them how to cook is kind of the common sort of thread as to where I go. And, and my recipes are for home cooks. You know, restaurants have a really, really amazing place in our lives. But when it comes to cooking for yourself at home, me trying to give you all the tips and the tricks that I know, one of my favorite ones is I love caramelized onions, but I get super bored of standing at the stove just stirring it so they'll caramelize evenly. So what we did is we discovered if you put in a big cup of water in your caramelized onions, put the lid on and boil them down, then the end caramelization process only takes 15 minutes. So I love finding those little hacks for home cooks just to, you know, to to shortcut, to make things faster, but still as delicious. But how can I get around that 45 minutes? I love that because one of the things that shines through this book immediately and your books in general is that they really are for the user. You know, you don't waste any words, um, but you can still sense that sense of generosity and trustworthiness in everything that you Mm -hmm. write in there. You know, it might be just like two lines, but you know, it's just what you need to know. And I love that every single recipe has an image, which is so important to a home cook, that you've created videos for people to look at so you can follow a link and go look at the video. Um, I guess it's it's a bit of a impossible question to ask but what does it mean for you to teach other people what to cook how does the teaching aspect resonate with you I've always loved doing that and I I think when I write a recipe to think that no one's going to cook it would just kind of kill my soul in a way like I I feel like a book is not successful unless I see people using it or people might bring an old book to be signed and it's tattered and it's got poster notes in it and spills all over. And that's success to me, not a book that's – because my books are pretty. I don't want them to sit on your coffee table forever. I'm happy for you to look through them. But, yeah, that is the end success for me is to get somebody to cook. Um, The success is not seeing a beautiful book roll off the press. It's to actually – see people posting little 
picks I've I've cooked this I love this or yeah that is what true success means to me one of the words that you use in the book as well is repertoire which I think is a very interesting word in the sense that of course knowing how to master the basics and kind of getting confident with these recipes um, can become your repertoire for when you're hosting uh, and it kind of takes the stress off that but what about how important is it to have a repertoire in terms of heritage memories you know I think of my grandmother's lasagna that was her repertoire how important is it to have these things so that they become part of family history personal history as well yeah that's a really good question because you know um family memories often evolve around food and i guess you've got a lasagna from your grandmother and generational ones but what are you what are you going to add to your family history are you just going to repeat what you've learned because that's fine or is there a more modern thing that you're going to add and I guess that's one of the things that I didn't consider in my career until one day a young girl stopped me in the supermarket and it was in the car park and she said to me oh my goodness I don't think you understand we don't have a family function without your blah blah cake and your this that and I'd sort of taken for granted that I'd actually unconsciously woven myself into people's food memories and their their family history. And it, it, I guess I hadn't considered that before, that it wasn't just their recipe anymore. It was my recipe with them weaving themselves into christenings and every birthday and every Christmas. So it's after that little encounter in a supermarket car park, I didn't take that for granted anymore. I felt very lucky is not a rich enough word. I felt fortunate. I felt um, humbled um, and grateful that that people had embraced my simple recipes and, and built them into their family history and memories. And that's an extremely powerful thing to do. I think for someone with a profile like yours that has such a huge reach you know it can really change people's lives you know <laughs> it doesn't have to be massive but these things become part of our histories and are, and are woven into our days and I think that there's a massive massive power in that okay let's talk about a bit more about the cooking itself I guess the question that begs to be asked even though obviously it was also true of the previous book is what brings basics to brilliance what is the magic ingredient that elevates something into brilliance? I think giving you all the tips to master that basic and if there's any shortcut along the way like the caramelized onions and just things like salsa verde you know like the right combo of freshness of the herbs with the kick of the acidity with you know the the spice of the mustard and I, I think it's more a ratio play of mastering a basic or it could be as simple as wrapping a clove of, you know, a head of garlic in aluminium foil with olive oil and sea salt so it caramelizes and loses its pungency and becomes super sweet and and really usable in so many different things. Or if it's just a really great base cake recipe, I've got an almond cake in the book that just is so flexible. It's so nutty. It's so simple. And yet you can throw seasonal fruit on the top. You can throw blueberries and crumble on the top. You can throw a syrup on it. So I think, you know, they're, they're those really good foundations that, that make a, a really great basic. 
that then you can build on. We mentioned something briefly about it earlier, but you mentioned how, you know, ramen now you can see on every street corner uh, in Sydney. I guess there's there's quite a lot of kind of Middle Eastern, Asian influence in the book. How has the food scene in Australia evolved in the last seven years? How has this transpired and found its way into the cooking in people's homes as well? Can you give us a bit of a perspective of what it was like seven years ago and what it is now? Yeah, I'm being such a multicultural society. Um, we always had uh, a very big influence of Thai, Chinese, like those really lovely, fresh, Asian, vibrant flavors. So, and that works perfectly with Australian climate. And then I think we just got a little bit more layering from the people coming to settle of Middle Eastern flavors and the zatars and all that kind of richness. That's coming more to play. Turkish restaurants, you know, like more singled um, kind of Middle Eastern and European restaurants seem to be flourishing. And therefore, when people start to demand those flavors, they become mainstream in supermarkets. And that's when it gets exciting for home cooks because you don't have to, you know, drive an hour out of your way to, to find sumac or a particular spice. And I think that's when it gets exciting that it, you can use that in your everyday cooking. And it, it might be something as simple as sumac, but it, you know, it's that lovely flavors that you get to play with. What about a shift towards healthy slush more vegetarian eating you mentioned a little bit of that before and throwing more vegetables into it but do you think that that has also influenced the way that you think about cooking and how are you seeing reflected in the way that your recipes are received yeah I'm I'm a big veg forward person no getting around that that's um, how my mother brought me up as well she's very ahead of her time so I'll do things like give you a classic mac and cheese nice soft cheesy, scoopable mac and cheese, gorgeous crunchy sourdough crumb on the top. And then I'll give you a super green one as well, loaded with kale and spinach and all of those greens that are super yum. So I try and balance. I mean, I really do walk quite a few lines. (laughs) I dance a few dances. Yeah, but that's how we eat. That's Mm. how we exist. You know, the kitchen's not a place where you just have smoothies or a massive roast turkey. There is some there is all the shades of yeah. emotions and life in there. We've mentioned a few recipes um, in this chat, but I've got the book in front of me and I would love for you to just direct me to just a, like a couple or what, the one that comes into your head first so that we can, I don't know, just la- lavishly look at the pictures and talk about it a bit more. Mm, what would I make for you today? Well, it's kind of a bit chilly today. Um, I would probably direct you towards um, actually one of my favorites. Let's say you're cooking for your friends. They're coming over for Sunday lunch and you can stop right there. You've got it. Excellent. Oh, my God. This is going to be good. Yeah. So your friends are coming for lunch. It's Sunday. And we've been talking about roasted garlic. So let's keep going with that. So you've roasted some garlic. And then what you're going to do is make it into the most well-flavored roast chicken. We're going to put the soft butter, the roasted garlic, some herbs underneath the skin of the chicken. But... I want it to to be a one-pan dish. So it's sitting on a potato and leek gratin. Now, I tested this recipe so many times, it was driving me insane, but I stuck with it because I thought, actually, my mother used to tell me when I was growing up, where there's a will, there's a way. Well, 
So I took that. <laughs> I took that on board. Um, I couldn't get the gratin and the chicken to cook in the same time. I like my gratin to be soft underneath, but I want it to be crunchy on the top because I want everything. Of course. Why settle? Why settle? So I eventually got to the place where we put the leeks and the potatoes underneath, a little bit of salt and pepper because potatoes love salt and pepper, and some herbs. But then you heat the cream or the milk until it's almost boiling. And then you pour that over the gratin before you put on the raw chicken on the top because by heating the milk or the cream that you're going to make your gratin out of, it gives it a head start. And it was just enough of a head start to get it cooked at the same time as the chicken. So those are the moments where I go home from my kitchen, my studio, and I feel like I am winning the day. (laughs) (laughs) I just love how there's so much of this perfectionism and science hidden underneath all this generosity you know you look at this book and it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it has this kind of warm-heartedness to it you you don't shy away from like saying the science words every now and then you've got a glossary at the end as well like how much of that perfectionism and just real structured thinking is part of your approach hugely so because if you're going to cook one of my recipes it's going to work It's going to work and it's going to make you look good in front of your friends. It's going to taste delicious. It's going to tick all those boxes that it should. So that's my job to do all the hard work behind the scenes. It's my job to work out that I needed to heat the cream to make the gratin perfectly because I want you to have the stuffed squidgy potatoes underneath and the crunchy ones on the top. So I am constantly going back to my science of... um, trying to work out or understand how I can make it that better or quicker. Is there a different way? And unfortunately, that's how my perfectionist brain works and why I'm not a magazine editor anymore is that you you constantly are hardwired for that better, better, better approach. And that's not something I'm going to change anytime soon, but I just channel it into my recipes for you. Hay, thank you so, so much for coming in. Now we journey to Portugal to explore the wine-growing area of Vidigueira. While it remains one of the country's lesser-known wine appellations, Vidigueira has a long history of making wine in amphorae dating back millennia. Located in the south of the country's sprawling Alentejo region, it is home to some of Portugal's most promising winemakers that are looking to maintain the time-honoured practice of fermenting and ageing grapes in clay vessels. Monocle correspondent Ivan Carvalho paid a visit to Vidigueira to speak with local producers and brought back this report. Developed by the Romans, winemaking done in clay vessels has been a staple in Portugal's Vidigueira region for over 2,000 years. Known locally in Portuguese as talia, the use of amphora is a traditional viticulture technique that has come back into vogue and which yields wines with verve and personality. Among those spearheading efforts is 30-year-old Anna Jorgensen, a talented enologist at her family-run winery, Quartz de Sima. So we're in Alentejo, in the south of Portugal, in the sub-region of Vidigaira. Vidigaira is uh, one of the DOCs of Alentejo. We are about 100 kilometers from the ocean, so we're quite inland um, and only about 30 kilometers uh, from Spain. But what really makes this sub-region interesting climatically is that there's no physical barrier between us and the ocean. So we have here we have some hills called the Serra do Mendro, 
and um, that's what separates basically where we are from the ocean, which means that we have quite strong diurnal um, ranges. So in summer, we can have 40 plus degrees, but then as the hot air rises, cool air comes funneling in from the ocean and it brings us down to maybe 15 degrees Celsius. And that's what allows us to keep freshness and acidity in the wines. So here in Vidigaida, we have a very long tradition um, with wine, and it dates back to before the Romans. Um, and that's where we first introduced the tradition of making wine in amphoras, which we locally here call talish. And it's quite interesting because there's only two regions in the world with an uninterrupted history of making wine and amphoras, which is Alentejo, Vidigaida region, and Georgia with the curvies. And, and although the, the Georgia ones are dug underground, the ones we have here in our region are always above ground. And um, the shape is slightly uh, tapered towards the bottom. And um, it's about 400 to 500 liters. They're quite small because they were made uh, locally in uh, artisanal small ovens. And they're quite porous as well because the temperatures never manage to get so warm. So they're often lined with a mixture of beeswax and resin known as pish. As you see here, um, these uh, tallas are quite different. Each one of them is a unique kind of um, artwork. So here we have, for example, they're made in different materials. This one over here has a kind of a coarser clay. Um, and that's really because... Um, in this village, this was the kind of soil they had versus this one here, which is a lot darker and it kind of seems a bit more fine in the material. Um, again, that's to do with the resources that were available in that particular place. Now, in terms of the wine that you get, because some of these uh, are a few hundred years old, some are, are younger. So what are the challenges for you as a winemaker when you're doing a wine in the Italia? Mm-hmm. Well, the Italia is... As you can see, these are quite rustic vessels. Um, they, they've been through a lot, and they're very artisanal as well. And so it kind of uh, make, it forces us a bit to step back from our winemaking 101 and step a, bit, a little bit more into the traditions and the local know-how of how to vinify. Um, and in the end, we end up getting, if we want to be honest with the process, we need to accept that we're going to have slightly more rustic wines with a bit more edge and, and grip. But that's really part of the character of these special wines. Typically enjoyed very young, producers like Anna Jorgensen at Quartz de Sima are looking to age the wines a bit longer and experiment with fresher styles. So in Italia, we also make a... Um, kind of a new take on a modern approach on the traditional method um, through our palhete. And a palhete is a traditional Portuguese type of wine, which is a mix of white and red grapes. In our case, uh, we use uh, Viognier and Syrah uh, from our limestone soils. And um, here uh, it's 80% white, 20% red. And uh, we put the whole clusters of the red inside the talha. And then we have the white juice that's already fermenting, and we fill the talha with that. Um, and so it's kind of an infusion. This is quite a fresh, very drinkable uh, wine because of like, this very low extraction, and it's very bright and juicy. So it's kind of a perfect wine to drink in the park or drink at the beach. 
but it's also very versatile with um, any kind of, I would say, more tapas and, and that kind of a thing. But you can also drink it without food. After Kors Tsushima, I visit Ermo Wines, a new project started a few years ago by Mariana Roque Duval, whose family owns the Casa Clara winery. First, I spoke with Mariana's husband, Carlos Costa Andrade. Ermo was thought to be a boutique uh, project. Uh, we aim to be a small producer uh, at the, the, in Alentejo, but we are based in two main properties, uh, being one at Serra do Mendro Vidigueira, uh, where we produce our uh, red grapes. It's our aim to only have Portuguese varieties, and our wines are made out of old vines, uh, around 40 to 50 years old. In Serra do Mendro, as I mentioned, we have only red wine. Why? Because as we are willing to have a terroir wines, our property at, at Vidigueira has uh, its soils are mainly uh, um, river stone and schist. Ermo focuses on Portuguese grape varieties, like the white Arinto grape, which Ermo founder Mariana Roque-Duval poured for me in her tasting room. The idea of uh, Arinto Talha is to, to produce uh, not a typical Talha in Alentejo, but uh, respect terroir. We, we want that you feel the Talha when you taste the wine, but the most important is to feel the terroir. So now compared to an Arinto done conventionally, let's say, in stainless steel, here in, in the Talha, what do we get with the grape? So with Talha, we can, we can uh, take the, the characteristics of the clay, so uh, the rind is very, it's not very aromatic uh, grape, but it's very fresh. And with the Talha, we, we, we have a more complex and at some time elegant wine with the characteristics of clay. With its lemon yellow color and earthy notes on the nose, linked to fermentation in the Talha clay vessels, the Arinto from Ermo surprises in the mouth with refreshing notes to reveal a very gastronomic wine. It is yet more proof that wines in Amphora from this region continue to surprise drinkers. For Monocle, in Vidigera, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Mariella Bevan. A court in the UK has ordered James Barr, a former Jack Daniels employee, to repay funds or face prison after helping to steal more than 123,000 bottles of whisky, coming to a total retail value of £3.5 million. Mr Barr pocketed £276,000 and purchased a holiday home, as well as two cars, using money gained from the stolen goods. CCTV footage showed Barr aiding six unauthorised lorries to leave the warehouse site between July 2019 and June 2020. Milan is cracking down on late-night partygoers with a ban on takeaway food and drink in the busy Porta Venezia area. The temporary ban means that takeaway food or drink from shops, bars with outside seating and even vending machines will be unavailable from midnight to 6am on weekdays and from 1.30am to 6am on Friday and Saturday nights. The new regulations were introduced after local residents sued the City Hall for noise caused by nightlife in the area earlier this year. And finally, the World Cheese Awards has crowned Norway's Niedelevenblå as their global winner of 2023. 
The handmade semi-solid blue cheese beat 292 other entries from the country and finished above Belgium, Switzerland and India, who filled out the top five. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Chiara. Thanks, Mariella. You're listening to The Menu. The awards ceremony for the 2023 edition of the World's 50 Best Bars took place in Singapore. Since its launch in 2012, the event has become something of an Oscar night for the global cocktail scene and 2023 was the first ceremony to occur outside of Europe. Monocle's Naomi Xu Elegant spoke with the World's 50 Best content director William Drew to hear how it went. It was a great night. I think everyone had a great time. We were in a big uh, former power station uh, down on the docks here in Singapore. Uh, A thousand people, our biggest ever um, bars event. And the night went off extremely well. Great party atmosphere, great feeling of community amongst the the bartenders um, and all the partners. And um, yeah, we think it was a, a great result. And Sips in Barcelona named the new number one in the world's 50 best bars. And the party itself, can you talk a bit about what that was like? The the venue itself was amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was almost like a big giant warehouse party um, because this huge space, big stage, big production, big sound system, we had a DJ on stage. So we were really trying to, you know, bring a, a party element, but also with the, you know, a serious side to it because being part of this list is very yeah, important for business, for the businesses of those bars. Uh, it's also important for the teams behind them to get the recognition and to get recognition from their peer group uh, and celebrate together. They work very hard. Uh, everyone in the, in the hospitality sector has had a tough few years and they're working very hard to, to come out of that. So this is a chance to, to celebrate that together and it's very much a celebration more than it is a competition. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of the first proper one since all the pandemic restrictions have been let off, especially in Asia, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we had a, a, a fairly big event um, in Barcelona for the World's 50 Best Bars last year, but there was still that element of, of Asia that was only just coming out of sort of travel restrictions and so forth at that time. So, you know, some people were, were naturally more nervous about traveling. Uh, I think now we feel like we're properly post-pandemic in that new era. And the first time we've ever held this event outside of Europe. So we were really gratified, not only that everyone came from across the world, but also that Singapore really embraced the events with um, a whole bunch of uh, collaborations and different events throughout the the week around uh, the 50 Best Awards Ceremony itself. What was it like to host it in Singapore? Um, Singapore is a dream city to host these events in. It really is. We've been working here for a number of years. We We have a great relationship with the Singapore Tourism Board. Uh, who support the event as well. But of course, the the food and drink culture and the cocktail culture in the city is among the very, very best in the world. There's everything here uh, at all levels from, you know, great street food and hawkstool and, you know, chili crab and pepper crab to to super high-end dining and drinking. So it has everything going on um, in a relatively compact and accessible space that you can get around pretty easily. So... uh, What's not to love? And what can you tell us about the new list? Any like new entrants or exciting changes? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of new entries in this list. It's pretty dynamic as well as, you know, two bars at the top of the list, number one and number two, that have never been in those positions before. Um, I think we're seeing more diversity, a really strong uh, showing from both Asia and Latin America. Um, which is symptomatic of the fact that the bar world is less about the traditional centers 
London, New York, Paris, and, and, and it's more diverse geographically than it's ever been. Yeah, I noticed Mexico City, I think, has five in the top 50, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, Mexico City's definitely come of age in terms of uh, its, its cocktail scene. Hospitality in that part of the world is, is you know, really strong and really kind of uh, intrinsic to, to what people are about. Um, and yes, the, 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 the bar scene and the, the cocktail culture is strong, but it's also got its own identity. It's not aping you know, traditional Western notions of what a good bar might be. They're doing their own thing and they're doing it very successfully. I guess I can't really ask you what your favorite bar is because that <laughs> wouldn't be fair, but could you talk about a couple that you're especially excited about or that you tried recently that you really, really liked? Uh, I'm from the UK and we're an international operation, but there's bars like the Connaught Bar that is one of the legends of the list that's been on the list for, for so long and continues to be really near the top of the list, number five this year. It's very difficult to argue with the, the quality and consistency of that bar, but primarily it's about hospitality. They're brilliant hospitality, and that's important because that's the, the thread that runs through most of these bars, is this sense of hospitality. It's, it's not just about having a great drink once in the glass, although of course that's important. Actually, it's the feeling of hospitality that's most important. For those people that exemplify that, are those that are going to be most consistent over, over many years. Naomi Xu Elegant with that report. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I'm Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finished this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is King Gizzard and Elizabeth Wizard with Fishing for Fishies. Thanks for listening and until next week.